welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at the Well. If you are new with us or uh, just by way of a reminder, over the last two months, we have been journeying through a series that we are calling Revolutionary. That is Jesus the Revolutionary and his revolutionary way of life that he invites us into. We said that this is a a way of life that is beautiful, that is, um, uh, it actually turns everything upside down, which is disturbing, but also really beautiful. He invites us into a whole new way to see the world. And we've looked at so many different things these last few weeks, and we're landing the plane today. We're closing this series with what I think is the most revolutionary thing he said. That is the thing that really actually sits underneath or is the foundation for every other revolutionary statement Jesus ever made or anything. If you've looked at the last few weeks um, that we've talked about this, what we're going to talk about today, uh, what we're closing this series with is the foundation. Um, And it could probably be best expressed or at least partly expressed by this. A marshmallow. And you're like, they didn't have marshmallows in Jesus' time. And you're absolutely right. It's one of the reasons we wouldn't have wanted to live then. Um, (laughs) This marshmallow, actually, some people say, uh, can be a great predictor of your future success or your child's future. Uh, This marshmallow, some say, could actually explain why the economy in the West over the last few hundred years has boomed and why actually maybe it won't in the future. (laughs) And here's what I mean. In 1971, Stanford University performed what they called the marshmallow experiment. And the results of that experiment they found were very predictive for the futures of the people who participated in it. Now, I want you to watch this recreation, uh, this present day recreation of that famous experiment. Okay, so here's the deal. There's a marshmallow, you can either wait, and I'll bring you back another one, so you can have two, or you can eat it now. So you can eat it now, or you can wait, and I'll bring you back two, okay? Okay, I'll be back. Okay, so I have one marshmallow for each of you. Okay. One. And here's the deal. You can either eat it now, or you can wait till I get back, and you can have two. Okay? Okay. So eat it now or wait till I get back and you can have two. And I'll be back in a little bit. If we wait, we, we'll, we'll, you'll get us two? Yep, if you wait, you'll get two. Or you can eat it now, whichever you want. Okay? I'll be back in a little bit. What if you wait until she gets back, she'll give you two. She still won't give you two because you ate it. So I love it. And I didn't eat a single bite of mine. So don't show her, okay?
I have this marshmallow, and you can eat it now. Or if you wait a little bit, I'll bring back two for you, okay? Yet, so I'm gonna look for some more, but you sit here, and if you haven't eaten that one, I'll bring you back another one, okay? I'll be right back. Dave promised me that he would give me another one if I waited till the end of the message, but I couldn't wait. <laughs> I love that kid licking the marshmallow. That was the best. Here's what Stanford found with that experiment. That the children who were able to wait until they got a second one, um, actually, and they studied these, these uh, participants over the next 20, 30 years, they found that uh, in the future, they were the ones who ended up having better success in school and career, uh, in their relationships and marriage, that being able to delay gratification was a key factor in future success. Interestingly, if you think something at, at another level um, or from a completely different vantage point, now Ferguson, who taught at, um, at Harvard for many years, uh, wrote a book called Civilization, The West and the Rest. And one of the most profound points he makes is the reason the Western economy exploded over the last few hundred years um, was because people who, in a sense, founded Western civilizations, founded it on the principle of delayed gratification. We can work hard now and we will gain something later. And he said, because... As a Western society, we have lost that value, even though we're probably smarter and we have more technology, the Western economy is actually about to decline because we have lost that principle of delayed gratification. And that's so interesting, even though we could look at now Ferguson's book or we could look at the marshmallow experiment in 1971 and say, okay, that makes sense, we should delay gratification. The fundamental truth is we don't believe it. We don't believe it. We live in a culture that says, get whatever you can get now as fast as you can get it. <clears throat> we have financial institutions <clears throat> tripping over themselves to lend you money you don't have to buy something that you can't afford so that you don't have to wait long enough to save up to get it later. You can get it now. 
You have furniture companies that say, hey, you can sit on our new couch in your home now and, out, and you don't have to pay a cent now. You can get it now and pay for it later. We have a culture of immediate consumption of ships tomorrow. You know, get it same day delivery. There's an immediacy around our, that technology has really given us the opportunity to have that has fed into our sense of, I need it now. But it's not just sort of economics and technology in the present day we're living in. Psychologists actually say that uh, if as a child you experienced um, significant instability, if your parents divorced, if you went through any kind of trauma, what those experiences taught you was if there's something good in front of you, get it now because the future is not likely to be better. Right? What your experiences of instability and trauma and hardship taught you was you can't count on the future to be better. It probably won't be because it wasn't for you. And so you have to get it now. And so for some of us, our experiences are working against this idea of delayed gratification. And then you add this to a, a get it now, I have to get it now culture, the fear of if I don't get it now. And that's actually the fear of scarcity, which our pandemic has very much brought front and center to many of our homes and many of our hearts. <laughs> and we saw people hoarding toilet paper. Got to get it now because you don't know if you'll get it later. Got to get whatever you can get. The housing market, in a sense, get it now. Um, act now because it might not be available later. Or vaccines, you better line up and get it now because you don't know if they'll run out. And so in addition to a I need it now culture and the habit of I need it now, we now have a fear of what if I don't get it now? And all of these things are actually contributing together to not only for many of us be living with sort of mountains of debt or even climate change experts saying we're using up the resources too fast because we need it now and we want it faster than ever. That our earth is suffering as a result of it. Our financial situations and our stress because of that is suffering as a result. But that it is also breeding a kind of selfishness and a fear. One of the beautiful things that Jesus' revolution does is it invites us out of that selfishness, out of that fear and anxiety, out of seeing the world the way we see it now into an upside-down way that is actually beautiful and brings freedom. And what we want to get to today is, I think, the most important part of the Jesus' revolution it is the one thing that actually makes sense of all the other things he said, everything we've looked at the last few weeks. If we understand this, it actually is the catalyst for unleashing all of the revolutionary aspects and the benefits of Jesus' revolution in our life if we would understand it. And yet, when he first put it in front of his disciples, they could not accept it. In fact, they rejected it. The passage we're going to look at actually starts, um, is, is a turning point in Matthew's biography of the life of Jesus. It's in a sense where the narrative reaches a climactic point in this very significant conversation that is um, not only important, but emotionally charged and is the turning point of Jesus' life on earth and his teaching and actually the turning point in the revolutionary movement. And so I want you to listen now, as we listen in, in a sense, on that conversation that Jesus had with his disciples 2,000 years ago. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? 
They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. This turning point conversation that Jesus has with his disciples and with Peter, who's one of the disciples, is one that starts out so good for them and ends up in an unexpected, in an, can I say, incomprehensible and therefore unacceptable place for them. And it is the turning point, not only in Jesus' story, but in our revolution. Jesus uh, is with his disciples and um, he has been uh, collecting, in a sense, a broader and broader group of followers. In a sense, we could say this, people who are joining the revolution, people who are listening from all over the place, who were um, beginning to follow him and saying, yeah, we want in on this. And his disciples were the inner circle of that movement. And so Jesus is having this conversation with them. And for the first time, uh, because people have been whispering and saying, like, who is this? And what, who is this guy really about? And, and so Jesus, for the first time, actually finally brings up the, the, the question with his disciples. They had probably been talking about it, but he actually brings it up and says, okay, who do people say that I am? And who do you say I am? Hey, guys, what do you hear other people whispering about and talking? And Peter, who's kind of the spokesperson um, well, they say, hey, you know, like uh, people say you're a prophet. And they list off a few of Israel's prophets. Um, obviously, John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, who was a present day one, who had recently been killed. Uh, but Elijah, and what you need to know about the names that they throw around here is it's saying the prophets for Israel's tradition and history were the people that were, they represented God. They were the voice of God, but they also didn't just speak with power. Many of them did miracles like Elijah. And they were also their leaders. At times they were their political leaders, not just sort of religious leaders. And so the word prophet meant a lot to these people, especially because for a few centuries there weren't any. And so all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene and, and the disciples are like, yeah, people are saying you're this amazing prophet, like Elijah, like, you know, some famous uh, people in Israel's history. He says, okay, that's interesting who do you guys say I am? You, you've been around me more than anyone's been around. You have heard more than anyone else has heard. You have seen more than anyone else has seen. And you know me personally. Who do you say that I am? And this was a really loaded conversation because as I said, the disciples probably would have been talking between each other. Who is this man? We know they even said that at times. 
But Jesus had seemed to ignore that question altogether and be not interested in it. And at this moment, he's saying, okay, well, what do you guys think? And Peter, who's the spokesperson, comes out and says, you are the Messiah. Which was saying, you're the one. You are the one. Messiah was the one promised from centuries before who was, God was going to send to his people to liberate them. And after 400 years of being oppressed uh, religiously, politically, economically, socially, personally, physically oppressed, Messiah was going to come and lead them out into freedom and independence on every level. Messiah was the one who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, who was going to break off the, uh, any oppression of their religion and give them back their freedom in every level. And so Peter comes out and says, you're the Messiah. You're not just like someone from our past. You are our hope for the future. You're not just like a leader. You are the one. All those other leaders, all those other prophets, you're the one they were, they were saying was going to come. In fact, some of the past great prophets had said, one day someone will come. One day a leader will come. One day a new king will come. And Peter comes out and says, we're convinced you are that one. <laughs> Which probably not only would have been an exciting thing for them to say about Jesus, it was exciting for them. Why? Because they were in the inner circle. They were closest to the center of the revolution. They were going to receive the benefits of him being the one. It's like when your friend who you know has some decent musical talent, all of a sudden their album goes platinum or whatever. They get their first record deal. You're like, yay for them. And I'm their best friend. I'm in the entourage, right? That's kind of what, what they would have felt and thought. And then he goes even further and he says, you are the son of the living God. I don't even know whether Peter knew what he was saying in this moment. You're the son of the living God. That term was a loaded term. It's, at times, the Jews used it to refer to the Messiah, but not very often. Um, but it, it was a term that might have been used to refer to him. But it was definitely a term that the Romans used at that time to refer to Caesar. Caesar were, was considered, whatever Caesar was on the uh, empire's throne, to be a son of the gods and therefore not just uh, obeyed as a political leader, but worshipped as a god. Emperor worship was now a part of that world. And so in Peter saying, you're the, you are the son of the living God. You're not just a son of the gods. You are a son of the living God with a loaded title. And it probably even was intimating the fact that you're not like any other human we've ever known. I mean, they wouldn't have had this idea that Jesus was God at this point because for them, they never put those two ideas together. They, not, they never thought Messiah would actually be God. And they knew later um, that that actually what, who was Jesus was. But at that moment, Peter's saying something a little bit, you know, just saying, you are like no human we've ever known. You are a son of God. Maybe he was picking up from Jesus, you know, teaching them to pray, saying, my father, my father. He kept calling God my father. He says, you are son of of the living God. This was a moment for the disciples because Jesus seemed before uninterested in declaring himself the Messiah. And at this moment, when Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, you know what Jesus says? If my kids were there, they'd say, facts, facts, Peter. That is true. Jesus actually affirms Peter's declaration. In fact, he says, 
you didn't come up with this yourself. Heaven told you this. God told you this. What you just said is a divine truth. It comes from God. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. Which they would have been like, oh, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Jesus affirms it. And then the scriptures go on to say, from that time on. From that time on. From which time on? From the time that Peter said, you're the one. You were the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, you're right. From that time on, it's like, it's like you know, um, Jesus saying, you're right. You're right. And they're thinking, great. The revolution is starting. Finally, he's willing to acknowledge it. And in fact, at that point, they were going to start moving towards Jerusalem, which was the center of political and religious life. That's where Jesus would need to go if he was going to lead this new revolution. And then it says, from that time on, it's like Jesus saying to his disciples, lean in, lean in. Okay, guys, you got that right. Now you want to hear what's next? You want to hear the plan? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Jesus says, from that time on, Jesus began to tell them, I'm going to go die. It says, from that time on, Jesus continued to say, as they were walking step by step towards Jerusalem, he says, in Jerusalem, I will suffer and I will be killed. To which the disciples would have said, Jesus, that's so funny. We thought we heard you say you're going to die. And Jesus says, yeah. It says, from that time on, in other words, as soon as they realized he was the one, he began to tell them over and over and over as they walked day by day towards Jerusalem, where they had always hoped he would go. He says, yeah, you know what's going to happen when I go there? I am going to die. Finally, it was too much for them. Finally, Peter, again, the spokesperson. You can imagine this, hearing this day after day as they're literally journeying towards Jerusalem. Peter finally pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, you got to stop talking like this. In fact, Peter uses such strong language. He says to Jesus, never. This cannot be the plan. No. This cannot be the plan. Why? Because this is how all the revolutionary messiahs ended up. Jesus wasn't the first person to come along. People say it was the Messiah. There were many people who would come along declaring themselves or other people would say they were the Messiah and they would start a revolution and they would go in to try to take over Jerusalem or defeat the Romans. And you know what happened to every Messiah? They were killed. And you know what happened to the inner circle around those messianic leaders? They were probably killed too. And you know what happened to the revolution? It died. That's how every revolution around that time went. And so Peter and the disciples are thinking, wait, we thought you were the one. We've seen you do incredibly powerful things. We think you are the one, but now you're going to go and choose to die? You're headed the way of all other messiahs? That means our lives are probably in danger too. And this revolution is over just as soon as we thought it was starting. And so Peter says to him, Jesus, never, this can never be. <laughs> to which Jesus says to him, Peter, you are the voice of Satan right now. He, the literal words is he says, get behind me, Satan. 
which <laughs> I think the other disciples would have never let Peter get over there. Hey, Peter, remember that time he called you Satan? Like, shut up, you know? But this was a serious, as strong as the language is that Peter says, Lord, this should never happen. Jesus turns to him. You know, it's like Peter grabbing him on the shoulder, saying, Jesus, you got to stop talking about this. Peter grab, uh, Jesus grabbing Peter on the soldier, soldier saying, so, shoulder saying, you are the voice of Satan. Get behind me. Which is so ironic because when Peter had first said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, you know what Jesus said to him? Oh, you're the voice of God right now. God's speaking through you and you're a rock and I'm going to build my movement on you, this rock. Now, a few moments later or a few days later, whenever it was, he says, no, now you're the voice of Satan and you're actually not a rock anymore. You're a stumbling block in my way. You're the voice of Satan. You are actually getting in the way of what needs to happen. And he turns to his disciples and says, okay, do you know what? Do you want to hear the whole plan? You know what the most revolutionary part of this idea? This was this revolutionary mic drop moment. He says, well, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not only am I going to die, but you're going to die too. That's the plan. <laughs> That's the plan. Literally, he says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple, like anyone following me, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus says to them, this is the revolutionary idea. Not just that I'm going to go die, but you're going to die too. And whoever wants to follow me, that's what your life is going to look like. This is the way I'm heading. If you're following me, it's the way you're going to. In other words, here was the revolutionary idea, the one that was underneath every other revolutionary thing Jesus said. Die now, live later. Die now live later. This is how the revolution begins. <laughs> Honestly, all they heard was die now and the rest was blah, blah, blah. Their eyes just glazed over. Their eyes just glazed over. They couldn't handle it. It was too much for them. Peter was saying what all the rest of them were feeling. All they heard was die now. You know why? Because this wasn't sort of a metaphorical, philosophical conversation. They knew what Jesus literally meant. It was literally going to mean their deaths. If you are my disciples, if you're in my inner circle and I'm going to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, I will be arrested and I will suffer and I will die. If you are following me, you need to be prepared for the fact that that will happen to you as well. And they couldn't handle it. They couldn't accept it. In fact, we know when he was actually arrested, by the time he was literally carrying his cross on the way to his execution, they were gone. They were not following anymore. They were nowhere to be found. The scriptures actually say they all left him. They all left. 
Jesus says, this is where I'm going. If you're going to follow me, you have to go there too. He went there. They couldn't. I think we need to be, you know, sympathetic to them. Because we don't want to die either. Right? Let's be honest. We do not like that revolutionary idea. We hear die now and our eyes glaze over and we think, no, Jesus, that's not why I'm following you. I'm following you because you're supposed to make my life better, right? You offer me grace. You offer me forgiveness. You offer me blessing. You offer me healing. You offer me a new sense of purpose. You, you love me. You accept me. Like I'm following you to live, not to die. And Jesus says, yeah, all of that's true. But my ultimate invitation to all my disciples, so he says, anyone who would come after me, it's die now and live later. Die now and you will find life later. This goes against everything we think honestly about our faith. And to, to many degrees, our Christian faith has become a product of our culture, which says, get it now and you may not ever have to pay later. And we have incorporated that idea, that idea even into our faith. And so the words that Jesus say to us to die now, live later, sound so strange and offensive and incomprehensible and unacceptable to our lives. But it isn't just our, our culture or our upbringing or whatever that makes this difficult for us. It's really significant, right? When, when Peter's arguing with Jesus about this and saying, no, this can't be. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Strong words, right? He calls him the devil, you know, the liar, the chief liar. He wasn't just insulting Peter, trying to make him feel bad. What was his point? His point was saying, you are speaking not the words of God. You are speaking a lie. And I think this is what we need to realize. It isn't just our culture or ideas of faith that make this hard for us to accept. There is, the scriptures tell us, an enemy of our soul who is constantly lying to us and his lies look like this. You don't have to die now. Or can't, you can't really trust God to give you life later if you die now. And those are both liars, lies from the chief liar. You don't have to die now to live later. You can get everything you need now. You don't have to die at all. Or if you die, how do you really know? God's really not going to come through for you later. And you know what? Those were the same tempting lies that Satan told Jesus when he was in the desert at the beginning of his life. And they were the same lies that were coming out of Peter's mouth in that moment saying, Lord, you don't have to do this. It doesn't have to be this way. This cannot be the plan. And so we recognize this is what we have to grapple with. <laughs> this is why it's so hard for us to believe. Not just our culture, not just our family background, not just the world and the economy we live in, but also that we are being lied to by the chief liar to say, you don't have to die now or God won't come through for you if you do. Which is why... Jesus couldn't just tell them that this was true. He had to show them that it was true by his death and resurrection. Jesus didn't just teach them, if you die now, you will live later. That the path to life is actually to go through death. 
that we die now and we trust that God will raise us up later, that if we follow the things that God is inviting us to do, if we lay our lives down, he will raise it up later. Jesus didn't just talk about it. He had to show them that it was true. And so when he walked to his death, when he took up his cross and allowed himself to be crucified on it, and then three days later, he was alive with them. It proved to them forever that die now, live later is true. <laughs> See, the marshmallow experiment and economic theory are not enough to convince us because everything else around us tells us you don't know what the future is going to hold. You can't count on that. Just get what you can get now and hang on to everything you have. Hang on to your life. Don't lay any of it down. Don't give any of it away. Don't, give, don't sacrifice it because you probably won't get it later. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus that says, no, it's true. Die now. Live later. To the full. Forever. It is true because I did it. For his disciples, he was proving to them that it was, this was physically true about their lives. And many of them were going to end up dying for their faith, for their uh, refusal to stop following Jesus and stop telling people about Jesus. And they needed to know that one day God was going to raise them up again. But here's the thing. We can make the mistake of thinking, oh yeah, okay, if I sacrifice now, I'm going to, I'm going to be raised to life later. I'm going to have heaven. I'm going to have a new body and a new creation. And all of that is true. But actually this principle, because most of us actually today aren't really called to, to give up our lives. Some people following Jesus around the world are called to do that, are following him at the risk of losing their lives. And so this word is really important to them. But it is just as important to us now, because think about it. All of the things that Jesus' revolution asks of us require us to die a little now. All of the things that Jesus asks us, they involve death. To actually experience the life and freedom of not feeling oppressed by power or by politics we can't control, we actually have to die to our willingness to be right our desire to be right about politics or to have power or control. If we want to actually be free in the relationships that we have, God is calling us actually to die to being right, to being justified, to winning an argument. If we want to be free from the people who are oppressing us or using their power over us, we actually have to die to wanting to get revenge or to want to seize it from them or to be angry with them and bitter with them, but to actually pray for and bless and serve them. That actually involves us dying. If we want to be free to give our lives and our money away to others, it actually involves us dying a little to letting go of the things that we think that we need. <laughs> This principle of death now and live later isn't just about our physical death and our resurrection life later. It's about all the little deaths every day a thousand times that Jesus' revolution invites us to die to ourselves. That's why he says deny themselves for his sake. In other words, in order to follow him or because we trust him and believe him that we will find life, something new and vibrant and alive on the other side of that little death. Not just waiting for heaven someday, one day, but there's actually something alive to be found if we are willing to let go and die to ourselves today. This is the revolution. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the proof 
to us. The reason we have to believe that every little death Jesus asks us to die now will, in fact, lead to life. And so I want to invite you to reflect as you look back at the last several weeks. And even if you missed some of the weeks in this series or this is your first one, you can reflect on this question just as equally. In what area might Jesus be calling you to die now? To sacrifice something, to lay down your life, to lay down something, to let something die in order to find life? Is it the need to be right about your political opinions? Is that something Jesus is calling you to die to and say, let go of the arguments. Let go of being right. Let go of the anger and frustration. Die to that desire to control it or to be right. Perhaps the need to be justified or right in a relationship or a conflict. You've been having a conflict. You've been having an argument. There's a relationship and you've been hanging on to being right or to being justified or having the other person say sorry. And maybe you're being called to die to that, to let it go. Is it to die to an enemy or opponent in the way of being called to bless or to pray for or to serve them? It will, it will, it will be a little death to do that, to actually give up and sacrifice and to give yourself in a sense to that person to serve and love and pray for and bless. Are you being called to die to your own desires for what you want or you need in the area of sexuality or relationships? Something you feel you need that is you're justified in or something you want, but you know you probably shouldn't. Are you being called to die to that, to let it go, to sacrifice that? Or in the area of our wealth and possessions, to die to the idea that you need a bit more, to let that go, to call that what it is and say, no, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to die to that idea. Friends, I think it's so important to realize that when Jesus says, die now and live later, his promise isn't another marshmallow, right? If you give this one, eating this one up, I'll give you another one. We don't actually know <clears throat> what kind of life we will find on the other side. No one can promise that. It isn't saying, oh, if you do this, I'll double that. Or oh, if you give away money, I'll give you back more. We don't actually know what kind of life that there is on the other side of these little deaths. We just know that it's there. When Jesus said to his disciples, whoever loses their life for me will find it. Do you know what that word find means, actually? A completely unexpected discovery. A completely unexpected discovery. We don't know what kind of life we will find on the other side of the things that we are being called to sacrifice or die to. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that there is life, that it will be there, and that it will make the dying completely worth it. Precious is my Savior's blood 
heaven wrapped in my shame The image of love upon display If having my heart was worth the pain What joy could you see beyond the
days are gone. My dad is paid from death.